Welcome all to this last episode of the Navigating Interdisciplinarity podcast series brought to you by the IASC ECN. It's been great to have conversations we've been having in the last five episodes and talking to some wonderful guests who share their valuable perspectives on interdisciplinarity with us. In this episode, we reflect a bit on that journey through the early career lens. previous episodes, we've spoken a bit about finding our own tribes, reading across disciplines and finding the right collaborations. Today, we reflect on doing some of these things in parallel with both battling the precarity of academia and the emotional and often unspoken burden of caregiving for terminally ill loved ones, and the importance of informal collaborations and mentoring in dealing with these challenges. I'm joined today by Nusrat Mullah, a PhD student at the University of California, Davis, also an ECN member, to introduce our guest for today. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is the sixth episode of the Navigating Interdisciplinarity podcast. And I'm your moderator, Nusrat Mola, a third year PhD candidate in land, air and water resources at UC Davis. In the previous episodes, we've heard the insights and experiences of established interdisciplinary scholars on navigating disciplinary and interdisciplinary environments, the strategy around building a career in interdisciplinarity, building collaborations, and navigating issues of power. We will be reflecting on these topics today from the perspective of early career researchers. We are joined by Ramya Ravi, a PhD student at the Ashoka Trust for Research in Ecology and Environment in the Landscape, Livelihoods, and Conservation Program. So Ramya, to start us off, can you tell us about your work and your path to this kind of interdisciplinarity that you do? In the landscape where I work, it's essentially a grassland system, an arid grassland system, where an invasive species, Prosopis juliflora, was introduced into the landscape and subsequently over several decades, it has altered the socioeconomic and ecological structure of the landscape. With this changed integrity, my work has examined how the socioeconomic transformations in the landscape has happened over a period of time, given this introduction now. And how do you then manage the species that is essentially established in the landscape, how are people responding to it? So the interdisciplinarity side of it is, it is an ecological problem, but I'm also studying the socioeconomic aspects of the problem. I'm examining the issue from a socioecological perspective, given that it is a socioecological system, as most systems in India are. And I'm trying to see, or rather propose a fair and inclusive management plan for people that have come to adapt to the species, where all ecological tenets would tell you that invasive species must be removed from the landscape, given the ecological havoc that it has wreaked on the landscape. So that is the interdisciplinary realm within which I work. And uh, how did I come about this? That's just a fairly long story. Well, let's hear it. I'm really curious, like, did you start out with background in ecology or are you coming at this from a social science background? Well, I'm an MBA finance. So there's a lot of economic uh, to how I look at any situation, pros and cons, benefits, uh, disbenefits and so on. So that, that is largely the lens that I use to look at landscapes. But when I left the corporate world and I started to work in ecological systems, my focus my understanding rather was always that conservation means wildlife conservation. But over a period of time, having spent several years working on different projects, one starts to realize that several systems are not just purely wildlife or wildscapes, but several systems are social ecological systems where people are stakeholders. How do you then prioritize conservation where there is this supposed conflict between people and wildlife conservation, because in India, especially forest people are considered a hindrance uh, given the colonial leanings that we have towards forest management to, to the general integrity of the forest. So 
when I started to realize that there is a much bigger picture to how you are supposed to study a landscape, rather how, rather how I would rather study a landscape, I started to zoom out a bit. And, and I, I wanted to especially look for organizations that worked on interdisciplinary research. And ATRI is one such organization that primarily focuses on interdisciplinary research along with disciplinary works. So when I started out my PhD program, I had these grand ideas, like let's study forestry, fire ecology, let's study this, let's study NTFPs. But my supervisor kind of nudged me towards this, this landscape that I'm totally in love with, Pani landscape, Pani grassland. So initially, when I went into the landscape, the idea was to look at how Prosopis has transformed the landscape. And given the transformation, because this is largely a pastoral system, how is that impacting pastoral economy? So the, the linearity was rather simple for me. It was straightforward. There is this ecological transformation. And how do I study the socioeconomic impacts to the people living in the landscape? I mean, when I initially studied the landscape for about three or four months before I started working on my synopsis, I was sort of somebody upset the apple cart because people were dependent on this invasive species. So I had to kind of change the way I looked at invasive species in itself. For instance, I started to look for literature specifically that talked about how invasive species can be looked at in a less xenophobic way. You kind of need to look at an ecosystem function for what it is today. What is the possibility of restoring the landscape? What is the possibility of reversing the landscape? That is, take it back to a state before the invasion. And I started to engage a lot more with frameworks that sort of accommodated for the recognition of the service that invasive species provides. And having looked at the landscape, I started to realize that there is no one pastoral identity, but there are several different identities that makes up this particular social milieu of this landscape. And so I had to start engaging with sociology to understand how class influences political economy of a landscape and subsequently how history shapes our livelihood strategies. So what I ended up with a year later was a extremely interdisciplinary approach to my question because I wanted a holistic problem definition. And that's how I ended up falling in love with what we called a holistic interdisciplinary structure where I'm studying livelihood economies. I'm also looking at social structures of the landscape in a historical context. I'm also looking at environment, environmental history of the landscape, and I'm also looking at what are the uh, base level ecological transformations that have taken place. So if you were to ask me how did I end up here specifically, that's how I ended up. But for me personally, if you, like having heard a lot of the podcasts, uh, over the last few weeks, the theme that resonates with me is if you want to find a solution, there is no stepping away from interdisciplinarity. That's a really great point. And I really love how you told the story of your research. It's fascinating. And I, I was wondering whether, you know, since your research flies in the face of maybe like standard ecological tenets, at least the ones that I've heard of, like you must get rid of invasive species you know, do you find it challenging to find a home for your research or a, a network of similarly oriented researchers in terms of conservation and landscapes? I was probably extremely radical in my position when I said invasive species must be retained in a landscape, especially if there is overwhelming evidence in support of retaining, you know, retaining the invasive species, because the challenge of working in these dynamic systems, when, and when I say dynamic, I of course mean ecological dynamism, but I also mean that there's so much social dynamism, there's so much political dynamics of a landscape. You sort of find yourself at this, sometimes sounding like an activist in a very scientific realm. And I'm, all, I'm often cautioned about sounding unobjective. Uh, and these are debates that I've always had with people like, should I care for what people tell me or should I care about what the landscape is supposed to look like? Because this is an arid grassland system. There is no stepping away from the reality that Prosopis is eating or has eaten the 60% of the grasslands. How do you then speak to these many different actors in the landscape? Because there is an NGO network that works in the 
landscape that essentially talks about retaining the pastoral identity in its most romanticized version. And then there is the scientific network, people like us that are trying to be as an unobjective as possible, but then there's also a lot of data that is telling you these many different things. Every time that I've presented at Atri, I don't think I've never encountered a question that says, hey, one, why are you saying what you're saying? I mean, I've always encountered that question. I've always heard people say, but it's an invasive species. Uh, whenever I've presented my work at conferences, I've heard people say, it's an extremely great work. We definitely need to be talking about these different stories where invasive species is useful. But then I will also hear reactions like, oh, when people will start accepting invasive species and then this whole hard-won battle with invasive species need to be removed. You know, your work basically says it's okay to happen in the landscape. You know, I've always had to navigate through these conflicting positions. But I think that's what makes my work exciting because, I mean, rather that's what excites me about my work, that data has stumped a lot of these committed positions. And I'm happy to be an orphan sometimes and have a home sometimes because I do have a lot of people that I can speak to about my work. And that's where your data works. That's where the empirical part of your date of your your thesis work. This is something that I've also constantly encountered, right? I mean, the fact that urban ecology is not ecology enough or to do ecology, you need to go work in harsh landscapes and not be a city girl. And, or then you talk about urban social ecological histories and then suddenly you get a comment which says, so where's the ecology in what you're saying, you know, when you're actually talking about people's relationships with nature? It's a constant tension that you keep facing when you take these little positions. As an interdisciplinary scholar, we are driven by, like you said very clearly, Ramya, the passion for what is best for the landscape. And at the same time, we are early career scholars. So this is a process of us building a niche for our own. At the end of the day, we need jobs. At the end of the day, we need to find a place to call home and then do the things that we love. So how do you how do you then strategize into what you see yourself doing, say, five years from now? You know, once you finish or five years hence after you finish your PhD, what do you see yourself doing? And then how does this sort of relate to that? And what are the tensions that, that your position gives you? The second thing I also wanted to touch upon is, so the PhD system is basically a system where we are actively encouraged to be interdisciplinary. Typically, your committee, your doctoral advisory committee, as it is known, would have people from different fields. Like in Ramya's case, she has a sociologist and two ecologists on her committee. It was something similar for me where I had one, uh, one uh, I think two interdisciplinary scholars, one of them a primary plant physiologist and then a sociologist. And so when you're having these meetings with your committee to discuss how your research is getting shaped each of them comes in with their own positionalities like while I had literally no explicit strategy in place in terms of relating those positionalities to where I see myself I was wondering if you had something around those lines how you you take all of these varied inputs and then translate it into your own research now I'm going to take the second one first because it's so much more easier to answer than the first one the first one is all about the future and I'm sort of obscure about that as well like I have a economics chapter an environmental history chapter and a review chapter that looks at what are the gaps in ecological studies so far as invasive species are concerned now more often than not, the languages are different. The language that you would use to describe an economic problem is different. It's the same for ecology. It's the same for sociology. Now, my economics chapter is not a hardcore economics chapter. It doesn't explicitly talk about a lot of the macro and micro theories, clearly. But subsumed within these descriptions are sociological comparisons, anthropology, takeaways from the landscape. I've had a tough time navigating how much is too much and how much is too little, especially because I'm not a hardcore ecologist. I've had to learn my ecology. I'm not a hardcore. I love sociology, but I haven't engaged with it rigorously enough throughout my schooling years or in my grad undergrad. And that holds true for economics in certain ways. So in addition to the challenges of learning these disciplines, I also had the challenge of thinking like a scholar or thinking like a interdisciplinary scientist for that took me a long time because I also have this overwhelming feeling of imposter syndrome, right? 
I mean, that's your constant companion for any PhD student. There is no easy way around it. You obviously have to teach yourself these subjects. You have to spend the hours, the time. You have to decide what are the boundaries. And fortunately, your DSC committee, your, your doctoral advisory committee is going to be doing that for you, setting the boundaries. Okay, Ramel, or, you know, you've gone deep enough. Now pull yourself back and now look at the landscape and see what theories applies here. It takes years to get into that mindset. It took me a long time, especially to switch between my descriptions of the landscape when speaking to my ecological side of the committee and then to my sociology side of the committee. And each of them would then take away different fascinating things like, oh, but I find this interesting, but I find that interesting. Oh, but that's too much. That sounds like an activist. But that sounds like, you know, a scientist or something that a scientist would say. So that was always hard for me. But that's just me. I'm sure a lot of people would then would have found it easier because they switch off from an ecological chapter, switch on with a sociological chapter. I have never been able to do that. Yeah, I'm definitely telling you that's something that I find difficult as well. I mean, <laughs> have you have you ever had that feeling where you read an ecology thing and then you go to a history thing and you're like, what did I just switch from? You know, I, it, it's it's that feeling always. It's it's surreal, isn't it? Like you, you're just, you know, just about finishing reading about the landscape and suddenly you shift to people and you're like, oh, but you know, there's this so much nuance to a landscape. But once you're done processing all that information, it's so good because you feel so much more richer with your knowledge. You, you like what's happening. You like how the many layers to the landscape. You like the complexity. I think that's what I love about this whole approach because not only are you constantly learning and unlearning, but you're also pushing past the obvious facade of a landscape. Because I lived in, lived in Bunny for for what, three and a half years in total. And I still can't claim to understand the landscape. However, when you're writing your chapters, obviously you have to rein yourself back in. But the one takeaway that I've had in all these years is I dislike jargon. My committee members also dislike jargon. They would rather that research is leg legible, research is readable, it's, it's accessible. You create equity right then and there. So if my grand, like my my supervisor is constantly telling me my grandmother should be able to read what I write. And that kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to talk about Marxian approaches and I'm tempted to talk about, you know, ecological theories. But then I also want people to read my work. And so keeping it simple has been very, very useful. So it sounds like you've kind of sampled from a lot of different theories and taught yourself a lot of different disciplines, really. And throughout this podcast, we've kind of heard two like fundamentally different models of interdisciplinarity. You know, one is where like you have your expertise and then you like collaborate with other people to do interdisciplinary yeah. projects. Uh, and then there's kind of, I think, what you're doing where you're like, I'm going to bring all these things together as an individual to look at things in a multi-layered way. And so I guess I'm curious, like, what is your thoughts on these two models? No, I, I, I completely get that, Nusrat, because I was listening to these last five podcasts and all of them talk about collaborations as in as interdisciplinary works and that kind of stood out for me but at a3 we were you know we just learn different and this is of course a fear a fear that all of us have you don't know how deep you're going but maybe you're touching the surface of each discipline to answer a particular problem because you're more solution oriented but of course we have these challenges which is then rounding back to Peter's first question about where do you then place yourself where do you find yourself because if you ask me who are you today I'm so tempted to tell people that I'm an interdisciplinary scientist but when it comes to the actualities of a job market I don't know honestly what to call myself but you know I, like Georgina said possibly that <laughs> I think the area of expertise matters. I don't want to label myself because I don't want to overcommit to one particular label and then now say I'm an invasion expert or a grassland expert, but I know that I, I have an approach that works. I can live in a landscape and figure out the tools that I need to understand the landscape better. So I'm, 
I'm, I'm committed to the idea of landscape understanding than hurrying into this labor market. I don't know how that will work because I definitely want to be practical. I definitely want to work somewhere. I mean, I spend hours fretting over where am I going to end up? Who's going to take me? What am I going to say? Am I an invasion ecologist? But I'm not. Am I, am I a sociologist? But I'm not fully. Am I an ecologist? Not. But I've just decided to love what I do and see where that takes me. So for me, collaborations also is about going to someone, uh, and, and I'm talking about informal collaborations also uh, primarily here, going to someone for expertise, for understanding, like there are many economists that I've approached over the years to understand livelihood structures, approaches, political economies, and the interplays of political economies with ecological histories and so on and so forth. I've done that. I think in addition to formal collaborations, where I know a lot of people in various podcasts have said that it takes time, interdisciplinary is aspirational, you're not sure how long it will take to publish, establishing the right framework takes time. Yes, if you have the freedom to kind of navigate through interdisciplinarity at your at a very functional and basic level, which is your PhD, well and good, but you can you also need to work on informal collaborations. And I think that also needs a lot of talking space than just formal collaboration. That's a very important point that you've raised, Ramya, because I think we've we've been talking about collaborations as this formal. I think also, I think the way we've framed some of our questions in the previous episodes have been directed towards how do you find a formal collaboration? How do you sort of then work with people? How do you find your tribe that you want to work with? And I think a big part of collaborations is also the informal relationships that you build over time. I mean, I'm just thinking about my own experience where before, before obviously I had my thesis external, evaluate my thesis. I remember this very informal interaction, informal and indirect at the same time, you know, so to speak, that kind of shaped the work that I did with my thesis external was Mahesh Rangarajan. Mahesh Rangarajan is a respected urban environmental historian um, in this part of the world. Yeah, aspirational. Yes. (laughs) But I remember this little incident where my supervisor made a presentation of my work at something that he was a part of. And I remember how Mahesh actually went up to Harini and then said, you know, here are some comments that your students student could benefit from. And then my supervisor very, very dutifully relayed all of that to me. And I found that very, very useful. So much so that a few years later, sort of, so to speak, when I met this person at another conference, it was nice to go up and say, hey, look, this was something that that really helped me, even if I didn't know you at that time, you know, your comments really helped. And that kind of went on into, I mean, a slightly more fruitful collaboration where, where we've got, at least I've got a chapter in one of his edited volumes coming out. But, you know, also this other thing where you just go up to people and talk to them and realize that they have something to contribute intellectually. And I just think that's a very, very important part of collaboration. Also, you know, how sometimes many formal collaborations are built because you share excellent interpersonal relationships with 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 people you meet in maybe formal settings. And all of that go into making and make sort of, building relationships that you build with communities over time and sort of defining the kind of tribe that you want to be associated with. And you're right, I think that's something that's very important. Yeah, I, I completely agree. There's several levels of your informal collaborations. There's, you know, these very experienced researchers that you sometimes hesitate to speak to and you're not sure. The one thing you've realized is knowledge can make you both arrogant and humble. Humble researchers irrespective of how high they go, find a way to help you. I have benefited a lot from that kind of graciousness. And then there's this there's this other level, of course, your formal engagement with your doctoral advisory committee. I mean, it's so important to build a rapport with them. Your positionalities will often clash. And you many students walk away thinking, including myself in my initial years, that this is personal, but it's not. Your landscape is important. Your people are important. You learning that subject is important. You learning how to study the people you're studying is important. And so you learn to sort of develop a thicker skin to feedback. And then you have another system of peers, right? Because there's peers you're friends with and there's peers you really, really respect for their work. Though many people talk about how lonely this PhD journey is, but it takes a village to make you 
a good academic, I really rely a lot on this, this idea that I have to be open. Having said that, I'm also aware that a lot of people confuse critique for criticism and vice versa. I don't know what to do about that, but I've just sort of realized that my thick skin I'm a pachyderm now and that really helps. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I mean, this whole podcast series also came about because of the graciousness of, you know, the encouragement that we got from scholars who've been running the Incommon podcast and, and other venues as well. I mean, honestly, that, that encouragement was something that really pushed us to sort of doing something like this. Let's see, you've already kind of covered the importance of mentorship and finding your like community. I think that's a thing that multiple people on the podcast have said like you know you need to build because we know one person isn't going to be enough and then just one advisor uh isn't going to cover it for you Um, so I guess I'm wondering like you know what has been your experience like finding these other mentors I just have to give a lot of credit to my committee they're just amazing people in addition to being hard taskmasters, they're also kind when it's needed. And I think just finding the right doctoral advisory committee helps because this is a fixed term arranged marriage, right? You don't get to fall in love with your committee members right away. It takes time and vice versa. I mean, they have to like you too. <laughs> so once that chemistry sets in, I, I think it, it it takes time to perfect that relationship to kind of understand each other. So I, I I'm going to give a lot of credit to my committee members they have worked hard on me but at the same time you know conferences really help even though that just too many people and so it doesn't make enough space and time for critical or meaningful engagement but just to see the people you admire whose work you admire I'm averse to pedestalizing people but you know meeting these people in person makes their study seem real to you I've kind of had that moment in 2019 when I attended two conferences and I bumped into people whose work I really admire, you know, people that I cite. And it's an exciting moment when you meet these people and they're drinking wine and you're offering them a plate of cheese and you're like, oh, that seems nice, even though there's nothing academic or scholarly about that. But I've also realized that a lot of people are gracious if you just are less fearful of how you will be perceived. We often make our people to be worse than they're actually (laughs) not, maybe. But uh, I have learned to overcome some of my fears and learn to just put my thoughts out there, let them deal with it. Because I know I'm very kind to the young scholars who sit and ask us questions. And I'm sure a lot of people feel, feel that same way. So uh, there's accidental mentoring that has taken place in the form of an offhand compliment for your presentation. Then there is meaningful mentorship that I've received from my own committee members. And then of course my peers who just played a huge role in ripping down my work and then reconstructing it alongside. Like I said, it takes a village. Yeah, I resonate so hard with the realizing people aren't as scary as you make them out to be once you actually talk to them like a person. I was curious because this has come up a couple of times now that Atria specifically encourages interdisciplinary research. And so I'm curious, how is your experience of the barriers of interdisciplinary research or the challenges? Like, how is it maybe different from what we've heard? And do you think that, you know, the institution you're at is doing a good job? Do you think that this is the future of interdisciplinary research? Something that's really been very, very helpful in the way I think has been the experiences that I've had at ATRI. I did get into ATRI knowing full well that I would be expected to negotiate through disciplines because that was something that I was always looking for. So in in Bangalore, where I did my bachelor's, you could take three subjects as your honors. So I did it in chemistry, botany and zoology. But then I did not feel like I wanted to be tied down by any one of those for choosing uh, something to do at master's. And then I remember doing this course called life sciences in another college which gave me a mishmash of everything that's natural sciences biochemistry microbiology biotechnology botany zoology biostatistics informatics i mean everything but it still spoke to within the natural sciences and it still spoke to things like very frequent conversations about disciplines within the biological sciences like why 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 we need to be studying our notes on the respiratory pathway, which is kind of identical in both plants and animals, at least some of them, why we need to study the notes differently for botany and zoology. And it it just 
it just kind of was very harsh on my ears because if it's the same damn thing then why on earth are we why not are we studying it twice in different sets of notes i mean you can use one set of notes that you're most comfortable with and get it over with right so yeah i i, I never wanted to be tied down by discipline i also wanted to have the freedom to sort of look at other things and by then i was also working with ngos that were looking at vulnerabilities of slums to climate change and so on so i knew that there was a strong social component that i wanted to engage with and that's how i kind of knew full well what i was getting into when i got into a3 in terms of the fact that i i i could move through disciplines uh, what i did not know was how difficult that is going to be in terms of speaking the language uh, in terms of you know when you have to describe the arterial system of a human being it's it's pretty straightforward you can even draw a stick diagram of a human being and yeah. you know and and then you just put these uh, things there and say this is your well you know whatever the arteries that 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 go to this part of the brain, your body or so on and so forth you can't do that with the social sciences some words are loaded some words are political some words have multiple meanings and you're like what so what word do i even use what is the difference between epistemology and ontology what is you know what is normative and then you yeah. have people quoting foucault and derrida and marx at you all the time and i'm like what am i missing out here because am i a fool because i do not know these things and i mean it was it was it was madness and of course economics all graphs looked alike to me because i'm bad at math <laughs> of any form <laughs> there's an x axis there's a y axis there's something being plotted and there's a slope which tells you something that's about all i could figure out but i think what helped me was the fact that most people at atri seem to recognize the fact that you come in with a certain positionality yourself their job is to facilitate your entry into other ways of thinking and i thought that really really helped like my own supervisor was telling me something like oh are you interested in history let's have history in your thesis and that's how simply history got involved in my work it's lovely to be in a place that does that for you encourages you to sort of do what you want but at the same time doesn't place restrictions on what you need to be doing yeah human body is a that was a lovely analogy i mean that makes sense i completely agree with you with what you're saying i mean atri made space to create interdisciplinary scientists while recognizing that everybody that was teaching us at atri were disciplinarians themselves and for me like you know the way i looked at atri's phd program and where i still look at it is kind of like what Vanessa and Jenny said in their podcast that the interplay of two disciplines emerges one interdisciplinarity and so for a lot of us at atri we could choose our the depth of our interdisciplinarity and the length of our interdisciplinarity for instance you could be a pure ecologist and work with gis techniques to find a solution to your problem uh, or help define that problem or you could be somebody who is an ecologist and work only with sociologists or you could be a sociologist and now working with an ecologist or a historian to kind of uh, explain the landscape of interest so for what i really like is at least in the initial stages landscapes determined how interdisciplinary we got while we were taught everything by the third or fourth semester when you're choosing your electives you're also like figuring out okay this is something i like this is something i can be and this is the expertise i would like to have in the future so naturally that kind of approach really helped me develop these various interests that i had knowing fully well that i'm not an expert at any of these things at sociology or ecology to some extent economics also because you may have learned economics but learning engaging with economics as a phd scholar is completely different because you also not just learning but looking at how you will apply it to people or a landscape or an ntfp or any kind of assessment that you're undertaking so it's uh there is so much ethicality associated with what you have to study and how you apply it into the landscape and who you are as a person when you enter a landscape atri makes so much space for that discussion and i really i mean all of us benefit quite a lot from such an atmosphere yeah and i i also think that something else that helped me sort of build boundaries was 
what my supervisor kept referring to uh, which is what is the question that you're asking and what yeah. is the level of interdisciplinarity that you want to frame it as so you might fancy yourself a historian or an urban political ecologist or whatever but does that really answer the question i mean she kept asking me what am i so to speak am i a historian trying to answer an environmental question or am i an environmentalist who is answering a question using a historical perspective and that really makes a lot of difference as to how you want to frame your work with interdisciplinary work it's extremely difficult to commit yourself to one label because it's just so fluid but not without boundaries and i kind of like that fluidity because you can be an economist today uh, to answer one particular objective and you can be a sociologist tomorrow so it doesn't restrain you it doesn't constrain you there is something liberating about that but at the same time i do not know how this will translate uh, when i start applying for jobs that is a real and ever present danger i don't know if this extent of romanticization and idealism will help me in the practical world but having said i don't mind adapting myself to any label so far as i'm doing interdisciplinary work and so far as i'm working with landscapes and people and uh, especially social ecological systems yeah that's really I, interesting to hear like it sounds like Atri is doing a really good job with interdisciplinary research but then you have the challenge of almost too much fluidity and drawing boundaries it seems like it's a worthy trade-off to you too but it also helps when you have hard task masters around like Kita said her supervisor would always ask you these important questions reviews uh, because a lot of this is extremely structured while you may want to live in your idealistic world but in 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 everyday reality of atri there is reviews and uh, meetings like one of my committee members always describes me ramya is like a kite in the wind until you like pull her back in and that's what every dac meeting is supposed to do for you and i think trusting your supervisor really helps like uh, one of the uh, one of your previous podcasts also essentialized that you really have to trust your committee to do the right thing by you i think it's good to uh, good to swim around but it's also good to have a life jacket thrown in by the committee if, uh, very regularly we're coming close to the end of the hour is there are there any other topics that you feel like the series so far hasn't addressed or anything that's been said so far that you want to disagree with or anything that we've missed i mean we've talked about already uh, how labels can overcommitting to labels is a problem but i also think that discussions of labels can obfuscate or can be distracting from talking about solutions like adapting an economic framework to study a landscape can have its own limitations and challenges a lot of the having done interdisciplinary research for this short period of time i do feel like sometimes having these labels can of you know dilute the conversation a lot sometimes interdisciplinarity can feel like food for the soul i mean a lot of people have talked about how it takes so much time but it's important to do and yes it is extremely important to do because we are living in a world that requires interdisciplinary collaborators and inter- interdisciplinary practitioners and scientists and so on and so forth so definitely there is this urgent need for such a tribe to grow but i also think that you cannot decentralize food for sustenance so you you know then have to practicalize your research so there is always going to be a conflict between food for the soul and food for sustenance and you know you have to adapt accordingly i think being a survivor uh, is essential and of course having a great infrastructure of care like uh, malini was talking about in the previous uh, previous podcast yeah uh, so that sort of brings me to something else ramya that we've been talking about in the last few months which is how we talk about these infrastructures of care and sort of navigate our own personal challenges something that initiated a lot of these conversations between us in the last few months has been the shared circumstances of us both being single children who are caring for ill parents and also trying to navigate the precarity of our own academic positions and that can and can that sort of come in different ways right for me it was i'm the only uh, earning member of my family so 
will my precarious academic position help me take care of my loved ones especially when there's there's so many medical emergencies going on would i be able to find a job that is permanent uh, in the long run it can take the form of frustrations you see the world going by you know normally around you but then you are pulled down because and i'm not saying that in a disparaging sense i mean there's no other place that i'd be but you know you feel like how, how am i ever going to catch up to what the world is doing ahead of me largely only because of the fact that i am in a precarious academic position it's not settled so to speak that i can use time to catch up and sort of you know get get to where my peers are and so on and so forth there's also frustration because these are circumstances that you cannot control and while we'd all be in a different place uh, it's it's not as if as if we have the choice to be there Uh, and something that has kept me sane through all of all of this is this network of care that has existed around me friends and colleagues who who've been there who've listened to me who've supported me who I mean I'm just thinking of Maria for example we're writing a paper together and oh, on one of these days when I had when I had literally no mental space left she just called me told me okay so what is in your mind with respect to your case let me fill in that those couple of paragraphs for you you know and that that really really helped just the fact that she cared enough about me to sort of take on something that you know i was supposed to be doing and and i'm eternally grateful for all of these little things that have existed around me to me feels a bit surreal because you know the way we've thought of academia has been this competition oriented sort of rat race right that where people seek to pull each other down or people don't engage sufficiently with each other and to find this entirely different ecosystem so to speak was was very eye opening for me and i was just wondering because i mean this is this is a and also i think the reason i'm bringing this up on the podcast is when i first found out about my mother's illness that was something that i would i was looking for i was how have people navigated this how have people in early career positions struggled with the challenges the very dire challenges of caregiving emotionally mentally as well as in terms of academic things and how have they managed to find the balance can you even find the balance at all and surprisingly while there's a lot of stuff on motherhood and you know navigating parenthood uh, and all of that there is nothing on caregiving and i thought that's something that needs to be addressed given the devastation caused by the pandemic for example i'm sure a lot of us have been put into these positions without having someone to talk to so yeah i was just sort of trying to get at your thoughts as well ramya i mean have have you i mean what has been your experience in sort of these networks of care how have you managed to stay sane in this whole process like you say we're not alone in feeling guilty when we're not working and we're not alone when we're feeling guilty while taking care of uh, our parents because i've often had this conflict when i'm working i'm always thinking about oh my god what what's happening to my father or when i'm with my father oh my god i'm missing out on these you know productive hours and i think it's how our society is inherently wired which is so supposed to be focused on you know producing these incredible things all the time and you know academic reality often sometimes looks like instagram reality everybody's life is perfect but i'm sure everybody is you know handling their own specific set of challenges so in knowing that many people are going through what i'm going through help me center myself here in i mean i'm i'm someone who abhors pity like i told you many many times i hate sharing with people about some of my personal challenges and uh, i i also often think it, it isn't fair to my father um, you know dehumanizing his uh, him at this point in time by talking about who he is now uh, rather than who he was before this illness took him is taking him so it is an extremely emotional burden to take on uh, and i have found um getting rid of guilt the easiest way it was hard but when i stopped feeling guilty like i'm here taking care of my father let me do that i'm here taking i'm here working let me do that it just stopped carrying this weight of guilt with me wherever i went that really helped me connect 
to what I'm supposed to do for now. Uh, manage like I, every time I would see my batchmates defend, I would be consumed with this fear. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. I would I would break into sweats. I was like, when am I going to finish this? I, I you know I, there's so much more I want to get to life, and I'm hardly able to do any of that. And it's so nice to hear people recommend meditate. You know, center yourself, find your core beliefs. You know. but it's hard to do when your mind is in a state of utter chaos right you just don't know which thought to prioritize which moment to prioritize what to prioritize but i think it's in that moment of chaos when you really need to dig deep for emotional resilience it is what it is today and so let me see what happens tomorrow so taking small steps like right now i'm here with my father let me focus on that in the next hour when he's sleeping find the energy to work find the energy to set your emotional chaos aside like stop prioritizing your psychological drama yes there is emotional pain here but then there's also psychological drama so i kind of distanced myself from that and it helped when i would talk to people because i have of course you know friends who are going through the same thing and so they would give you distance they would give you space they would give you no space to committee members who stop pressuring you for output and things like that so i don't know if there is any one template that helps you deal with such an extraordinary challenge in life because watching your parents suffer is definitely not the easiest thing but knowing that you're not alone is such a burden off your shoulders immediately right Uh, and i think more and more academia needs to humanize itself more and more we do need to talk about how much we are more than academics we are also people there's also life happening side by side and so i think there is that is happening in small pockets i mean i can't claim to know the whole academic world how empathetic it is how kind it is and i can't really claim to know that but in my immediate circle especially from atri there has been incredible support and you know that with how supportive this community can be how much they can rally around people and so you you sort of ex- learn to develop an acceptance for where you are yeah i mean no, totally agree with you i mean atri has been wonderful and i think for me it's been getting that kind of support from across the globe really i mean there are people who like you said there are people who pity you for what you're going through which is kind of not what you want at the moment you don't want to sit in a corner and cry and think about okay this is how my life is going and you know maybe there is nothing out of it or you know you don't want to reach that position but but sometimes these expressions of pity can sort of feel feel as if they are taking you in that direction and that's but what i what i've really valued in this last one and a half years is a that people recognize that this is a long term process kind of a thing there is a whole amount of anticipatory grieving that you're doing um, in this in this process which is probably slightly different from having to lose someone after a short period of time of, or or you know very suddenly and so on here you're dealing with anticipatory grief for maybe years and having people who recognize that and and factor that into their interactions with you is very important but the other thing that i really liked was uh, and and I, i'm really grateful for is having people who yes acknowledge that you're going through a tough time but sort of see how they can help you retain a sense of normalcy and i think for for me i think that's been my mentors for example i remember the first time i i heard of this you know news that my mom was ill i had a call with harini back home in india I was in the UK at that time, and the first thing she said here is things are going to change now. Let's see how we can make them, you know, how how you can work around them, and that was so reassuring to hear. Similarly, my supervisor in the UK, you know, the moment she heard, and and so for me, this this thing of telling people had to come in immediately because I was in another country. I had to get out of there and come back here, and I remember her telling me even before I could ask, if you need to go and be with your mother, do so. and having that thing with you know people understanding that you're going through something not worrying about academic outputs so to speak at that point of time was really helpful also people worrying about your academic outputs you know that you can do things you can lead at least some 
a life with some semblance of normality is very very uh, important i think that that makes life a lot more sane or so to speak no yeah. i completely get that because if an institution doesn't display its human side and doesn't support you in a very humane way you know your academic output is anyway going to be substandard because that's how you feel for the moment so of course yes i mean uh, for me I, i i can't tell you how much my committee has supported me because whenever i would get a call from my supervisor and i would be like you know consumed with guilt oh my god i'm so behind on my deliverables she would say it's okay and the minute she would say it's okay i would stop feeling vulnerable around my academic output and start working because i would you know the minute is you when you're battling all that emotional chaos like you're not supposed to be feeling this but when someone says oh, it's okay to feel this you start working so i think you know uh, having these systems that help you accept your situation where so much of your emotions dominate uh is extremely important i also think that uh, prioritizing mental well-being during your phd journey is extremely important because you face so many challenges and so much about our work is originality so much about our work is creative so unless you're feeling incredible from within or extremely robotic from within you cannot have an academic output uh, you can't engage in the most meaningful meaningful way possible so yeah i completely think that getting for your mental well-being from an institutional point of view at a personal level and also facilitating for counselor support is extremely important uh as individuals we must know when to ask for help be it professionally or personally and i think that's half the job done when you figure that out yeah that was something that i got as well take as much as help as you can get at this point of time you need it and yeah. don't be shy about and, asking for help yeah and it is okay to ask for help absolutely there's very little out there that allows people to you know discuss something like this i and i get it i mean it is it is it is traumatic to even think about it but and and i'm not sure how many people would be comfortable sharing some of these things so yeah thank you so much for doing that with me helping me also do it <laughs> no problem at all and vice versa you also helped me through some thick spots it's great how both of you just demonstrated how to get through these difficult situations together and i really appreciate your bravery in sharing that i mean i think it's good for everyone to hear whether we're going to go through this at some point you never know or whether someone we care about knowing how to support them it's really helpful it gives me hope to know like academia like you said like on the outside it's a very harsh like rat race but to know that you've both experienced so much compassion is really inspiring to hear The Navigating Interdisciplinarity podcast series is brought to you by a working group belonging to the Early Career Network of the International Association for the Study of Commons. We are the IACECN. For more information on our activities and to join a vibrant network, do check us out at iasc-commons.org. That's iasc-commons.org. Thank you everyone. Until next time. Bye-bye.